the Colosseum, Christianity, and Cappuccino. <laughs> this alliterative start for this radio show is really driven by the fact that today's guest has grown up being surrounded by all of them. And when you think about the countries of the world, and there is over 195, one of those countries is particularly special in the hearts and mind of many of us. Because the country of Italy brought us so many wonderful things, from the Renaissance to Christianity, to even cappuccino and phenomenal food. But it's not often, in spite of the fact that there's so much Italian culture in the United States, that we get to meet people, even in New York, who are equally comfortable in both worlds. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Our guest this evening is Carolina Ritchie. Carolina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a cool introduction. Uh, no, I appreciate <laughs> that. Well, when, when I met you, and we can talk about how we came into each other's yeah. lives, I just couldn't believe that you were not American. And you explained your roots, and I'd like to think that my ear is sufficiently trained to pick up accents just because I've had the pleasure of traveling to mm -hmm. so many places, including Italy. But your story was an interesting one, and that brings you on the show today. Please explain for our listeners your background. Where did you grow up? Although mm -hmm. I gave away some of it. And how did you come to America? Yeah, so I am from Rome. Both my parents are Italian, fully Italian, uh, barely speak English. I grew up in Rome. I went to high school there, so I was there up until I was 17, and then I moved to Boston for college. So when I was 17, I moved to the U.S., um, and I was in Boston for four years. I studied business at Babson College, mm -hmm. and then after college, I decided to stay in the States. I really liked America, mm -hmm. um, and I actually took a job at Bloomberg working in New York City on 59th and Lex. We've walked many of the we're, same halls in yep. my alma mater. Yeah, which is funny. And then I was there for three years. I was, uh, it was fintech, so I was covering banks and universities. Um, I had a, an interesting client base, and I really enjoyed my time there. I loved working at Bloomberg, loved the company. Uh, but three years in, I was sort of missing something. I wasn't feeling fulfilled, I guess is a word, and I felt like I wanted and could do more. And so I decided to leave Bloomberg and start um, my current company, EdSites, which is an education technology company that I started with my sister, Claudia. Okay, cool. Now, great introduction. Thank you for that yeah. background. I want to start, um, let's rewind it just a bit because... Mm -hmm. While many of us who have gone to college, and I teach in a couple colleges, as you know, I meet a lot of students from different mm -hmm. countries, but we don't meet a lot of 17-year-olds who grew up in Italy and moved to America. Yeah. I, I think that, that that is an unusual thing. What drove your decision either? Were you mm -hmm. leaving America or come, were you leaving Italy or coming to America or was it a little bit of both? Uh, I think it was a little bit of both. I, I don't think I was ready to stay in Italy for college. Italy doesn't have as many opportunities when it comes to young people. So I definitely wanted to look for something else. Uh, but having said that, a lot of my friends who left Italy went to the UK or they went to London, they went to Amsterdam, so they stayed within Europe. I really wanted to move to the US. I was fascinated by um, the US and I just wanted the experience of going to college in America. So, right. so you go to college in, in Boston and yeah. you made your way to New York. Uh, yeah. What was the sequence of events from Boston? How'd you get to New York and why? Yes. So I went to school in Boston, which was good because it's a pretty European place. So it was an easy transition. Um, Boston is a small city. Rome is a big city. So I was missing the big city life. Um, I interned in New York over the summer. So I knew that I really liked New York because I'd been there in one of my summer internships during college. 
Um, and then when I got the Bloomberg job, I visited New York. I didn't quite know what Bloomberg did or was. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I went to their office on 59th and I was like, this is cool. <laughs> you know, their offices are beautiful. And I was like, I don't know exactly what the terminal or financial technology entails, but um, I think I want to start my career here. Well, this is an interesting one because while you were walking into the the halls and walls of Bloomberg, there is a wow factor. Mm -hmm. And for many people that walk into that office, even if they don't know what it is, mm -hmm. it has an impact. Yeah. And it must have, you must have felt some emotional connection, even though you didn't know everything it did. Yeah. Talk about how it made you feel. Yeah. It's interesting because Rome is the opposite, right? So like where I grew up, everything is pretty slow. Everything is pretty old and antiquated. And even the equivalent of Bloomberg, so the, the cool, uh, successful company in Italy, their office would be very different. It would look like, you know, uh, an ancient Italian noble family's house or villa. So even the style is pretty different. So when I walked into Bloomberg, it just felt exciting and new and so different and fast paced um, compared to where it was from. And I, most of our listeners know Bloomberg because yeah. the man himself is running for president <laughs> and we wish him well. Uh, he was a phenomenal CEO and uh, it's really cool to have watched that evolution. Mm -hmm. But you joined an organization then at 22. You are mm -hmm. in still what is a new a country for you, what is mm -hmm. a new city, and you're in a career that doesn't look like careers in Italy necessarily because mm -hmm. people, they don't join Bloomberg in yeah. Italy, although you, you may work there. What did you set out to do? When I started at Bloomberg? Like, or what was my just goal? just you're in or... your career. So you're in financial services. Was yeah. that your target or did that just happen? I think I was fascinated by finance in general because it was so fast-paced and I would see, you know, Wall Street in the movies. And so there was a little bit of a wow factor there. Uh, but at the same time, I, the jobs within finance weren't necessarily what I enjoyed doing. And so Bloomberg for me was a little bit of that in between. I get to be in finance. I get to be in Wall Street and walk around, you know, a trading floor, but I don't have to be the one trading that is looking at numbers and looking at a computer all day. Um, so it was a good in-between for me. I didn't have an agenda necessarily. I knew that it wasn't my end point. I knew that I wasn't going to end up at Bloomberg, uh, but it seemed like a good starting point and I was just fascinated by by all of it. And I was... It, it was a good job. I was making a lot of money, so that also kept me there. For and in a New while. York, in New York, that matters. You yes. got to pay that rent. Yeah. Well, there there is an interesting point I want to get to in just a second. Before I do, let me uh, let, let's understand a transition. You were there for three years, and and you don't have to necessarily work in the Bloomberg organization to understand the skill sets that you received as a benefit mm -hmm. of having acquired for those years. What were they? The benefits uh, to, to yourself. What did you learn? Bloomberg? The skill sets. Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess that's a better way of putting it. What were the skills that you yeah. acquired over the over the course of those few years? That's going to lead us to this turning mm -hmm. point that I'm going to get to in just a minute. Yeah. Well, I learned more at Bloomberg, I will say, than in four years of college. So that's the first thing Indeed. that um, I'm very grateful for that. And I learned how to talk to people and how to put myself out there because I was a 21 year old. Uh, girl, because at 21, you're still, you know, young, young adult, young woman. And all of a sudden I was running around trading floors, trying to grab the attention of traders during trading hours to show them, you know, some Bloomberg functionality or something that Bloomberg came out with um, on the terminal. So it's a pretty intimidating job and being able to put yourself out there and not be scared of someone turning around and, you know, not wanting to talk to you. That was something that I definitely picked up at Bloomberg. So being able to deal with a no and, you know, still putting yourself out there and, and reaching out to people. And did it ever feel 
as you were walking in there, particularly at the onset, there, there's a fear here. Oh my God, I'm not up to this task. Yeah. I don't know. Do I belong? Yeah. Talk to us about those feelings. Absolutely. And Bloomberg really puts you out there just when you start. You're, you know, six months out of college and you are, you know, teaching a portfolio manager at, I think it was Deutsche Bank was my first client meeting. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm teaching this guy how to do this. And he's been in finance for 20 years and I'm six months out of college. But you couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> say that. You can't say that. And you sort of have to fake it till you make it. Right. And you have to play this part. And, you know, you know more than they do about the Bloomberg terminal. So you do have your skill set there. But at the end of the day, you're, you sort of feel you have imposter syndrome a little bit. Yeah. Um, which I think entrepreneurs have all the time. So that's something that you also get pretty comfortable with. That is a very good transition to where we're going. Yeah. Carolina, you were a couple years at Bloomberg and then you called me and you told me, Chuck, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing something else. Yeah. And I said, all right, let's hear it. And you explained it to me, and I said, oh, wow, where'd this come from? This doesn't sound like anything Bloomberg-ish. And you said, I think, some, yeah, that's the point. Cool. <laughs> Talk to us about your mindset mm-hmm. and your exit from Bloomberg to mm-hmm. this creation that you had in your mind and what happened. Mm-hmm. So, again, when I went to Bloomberg, I wasn't sure what career I was looking for or whether I was looking for a career, but I... I think I always wanted to do something quote unquote big or that felt big to me. Um, and when I was at Bloomberg at the beginning, I was learning a lot. And then after three years, like most people, I think in their twenties, you get to this plateauing point where you don't feel like you're learning as much and you just don't feel, I at least did not feel like I was using my brain to its full potential and doing the most of my time and of my, you know, skill sets. And so after three years, I wanted to look get something that was my own. So I wanted to do something that was for myself and start my own business. And at the time, my sister, who was in college, uncovered this problem that was professors weren't getting good feedback on their teaching. And so she was a senior at Georgetown. She uncovered this problem, and I started helping her part-time. And how, I, how did she know this? By being in as a student? As a student. So mo- a lot of education technology companies start because the founders – you know, witness the problem as students. And so that's what happened to her. Um, And I was helping her part-time because I was looking to fulfill myself in other ways that were not with my full-time job. And that's how I started helping her out and becoming passionate about education technology. So your sister, Claudia, that she tells you, hey, I think we Mm -hmm. could have a solution to a problem that exists, Mm -hmm. but in order to solve that problem, you can't work at Bloomberg. So I did work at Bloomberg. I was moonlighting for six months. So So it was in your head already. It was in my head. I was helping her out. We were roommates. So she was working on this side project at this point. She had a job that she had accepted at Amazon. She was supposed to start in January. And she was like, well, I have six months to kill between now and my job. Uh, I'm living with you. Why don't, you know, we start working on this app. I'm going to build it and you can help me build a business out of it, see where it goes. Uh, And so I would get back from my Bloomberg day job and help her out with this side project because it was really a side project at the beginning. And as I was doing that, that's when I started realizing, oh, wait, I feel a lot more passionate about the side project than I do about my full-time job. Um, And then gradually, she started pressuring me to quit my job. (laughs) She's like, why don't you just leave Bloomberg? Um, And so that got me thinking. And then after six months of sort of being on the fence, I realized, you know, I'm checked out from my Bloomberg job. And I'm so invested in this project that we're, you know, doing as a side project and I'm not sleeping because I get back from my Bloomberg job and I'm working on this until two. 
Um, I'm, you know, reaching out to Chuck, who I met through Bloomberg um, for this project. So I clearly care about this more and this is what I should be doing. So then you made the determination, I'm going to do this, but it must have been scary. You're 20, you were at the time 25, about to leave this well-branded institution that you say paid you well, of which you were acquiring skills. And then all of a sudden on day one in this other venture, what do you have? Not much. No revenue stream (laughs) and an app. Yeah. Because there's more to this story. What, what was the name of this app organization you yeah. created? So the app was called Class Pulse. Okay. It's not around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, it was tough. I had just gotten my first big salary increase or my b- first big raise. So I was excited about that at Bloomberg. Right. And I quit, I think, just a couple paychecks after. The good news is I got a big <laughs> raise. The bad news is the bad I'm not going to get paid anymore. If, yeah, I'm just right. going to take advantage of it for two paychecks. But, but you're now in class balls. This is a big leap for you. Yes. Especially in New York. Yes. Rents are so expensive. Mm-hmm. And just the, the, you, you can't walk across the street without paying a few yes. bucks to do something just to get on the subway. How did you summon the courage to do that? So I realized, um, well, there are a couple of things that happened. The first thing is the app got a lot of traction. So even though we weren't making a lot of money, there was an article that came out on a very big education journal called the Chronicle of Higher Ed. They wrote about our app. um, And so we got thousands of downloads within 24 hours. So that was a catalyst moment where I was like, okay, we're not making a lot of money, but people are interested in what we're doing. We're gaining so traction we're without gaining the traction. revenue. Yep. So there is an interest. Um, maybe it's worth giving this a proper shot. So that was from a company standpoint or a project standpoint, what got me, you know, to find the courage. Um, I think I also knew that I wanted to do something big at yep, some point. Get that. And but you're I, living on savings here. Well, there was not much savings because, right, right. you know, when you're three years out of college, you're not making that much. So. Right. Uh, I had very few savings, if any. Um, we were living in a one-bedroom. We were renting out one of the bedrooms for a while. So we were getting the rent from this oh, kid who was, <laughs> during an internship, who was living with us. Um, but I knew that I wanted to do something more. And I realized that next thing you know, you know, it would have been three more years and I would still be at Bloomberg and I'd be 26. And I just knew that I had to hurry up. I know that you have to fail a few times before you get it right. And if I started failing at 30, that was almost already too late. Hold that fail thought just a second. You're listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. My guest this evening is Carolina Ritchie. And Carolina, then, you are in Class Pulse. Yes. And what happened to it? So we pivoted as a company. Let's hear about it. Um, Like most companies, you don't usually end up with the idea that you started with. Um, so it's really not about the idea. Uh, it really is about the execution and, you know, being able to adapt and realize what's working and what's not working. Um, and so Class Pulse grew very fast. We had a lot of traction, but we realized that the business model just wasn't, um, it wasn't good. So, And you learned that along the way. Was that a wake-up moment? Good idea, bad it idea? It was gradual. What? I would say the the realization typically takes a few months. So maybe three after three months um, of me doing this full-time, we started realizing that we had to change something. And then we made the decision, all right, we have to pivot. And we really listened to what our users were saying to pivot. So our schools and our users were saying, I love this app. I love that I can get feedback from my students. But teaching and getting feedback from students unfortunately, in higher education is not always a priority. 
Um, that is not what universities necessarily care about the most, which is sad, but it's a sad truth. Um, and so universities were coming to us and saying, you're doing a phenomenal job at engaging students who are now sharing feedback about their teaching, which no one thought they were willing to do or cared about. Um, can you leverage that relationship and can you see if you can get feedback not on teaching, but on their overall college experience and find a way for us to connect with students at scale? So not about teaching, but more around student success and engagement and retention. Can you solve that problem instead? Um, so are you, did you create, did you kill Class Pulse and create something new? Basically, yeah. yeah. We you had to kill the other We thing. kept it going for way too long because it was so hard to get let go of that. Good lesson um, And we did both for a while. Uh, well, we weren't really investing any time in Class Pulse, but we were focusing on building ed sites. And we we're like, let's just keep Class Pulse alive. It doesn't cost that much. And eventually we realized we just had to let go. Um, and, and we started from scratch. were you burning through scratch. cash? We were. I mean, Class Pulse wasn't costing us too much, but we were burning through cash and we... Um, we pivoted, but it was a pretty radical pivot. We almost started from scratch and it was hard because it was almost like starting a new company. Um, but for my sister, she was a year into this already. Um, she had turned down her Amazon job. So there was a lot, I had quit my job at Bloomberg and three months after we realized this is not working. We have to almost start from scratch. Cool. Failure was not an option. No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> then you created this Ed Sites. Yes. What did it set out to do? So we, um, well, first of all, we got into the Techstars Accelerator Program, which, which is a... Explain that. What is that? So it's almost like an incubator. Um, they fund promising startups and they put you through this three-month boot camp almost um, in which they help you learn how to raise money. Uh, we were pivoting at that time, so it was really important because they really coached us through that pivot um, and it accelerated the pivot as well. And so during... Um, during Techstars, we really decided to pivot the company, and that's sort of um, how it started. And so we started listening to our customers to figure out exactly how this pivot was going to work. We realized that the real problem was not teaching. It was actually students leaving college, students dropping out of college. Um, and so we decided to tackle the um, college retention issue or the college dropout crisis instead. And we knew that we did a good job at engaging Gen Z and students. And so we essentially built a text message chatbot that takes the persona of the university's mascot that engages with students at scale over text message and it connects them to helpful resources and helps them navigate their college experience. How do they use it? So it's a text message robot that you are introduced to when you start in college. So during orientation or your first year seminar, uh, your university says, you know, hey Chuck, welcome to uh, let's say Baker University. We're so happy to have you at Baker. Um, as part of your college experience and an effort to support you, we are making this resource available to you. It's a text message robot. So it's a text message phone number that you can text. Um, it's Wowzer. So it's your school's mascot. It's automated. And if you have any questions around how to navigate your college experience, when it's a deadline for financial aid, how do I apply for classes? You can always text Wowzer and Wowzer will give you instant responses. So you're having a conversation with artificial intelligence, I take it? That's mm -hmm, behind it's it? machine learning. So if a college student who feels overwhelmed, mm -hmm. no matter how big or not, I know a, many of my undergraduate mm -hmm. students come in the first couple of days and they don't know where to turn and they're told I have an advisor, but they're very yeah. busy. You now have a friend. Yes. In a sense. Yeah. Even though it's a machine, it's a yeah. high-tech approach to helping you to get mm -hmm. comfortable in the questions that you don't have an answer to. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. How's it going? So it's going well. Um, there's a couple of things that are really unique about this bot, uh, mascot bot. 
one of the more unique aspects is the fact that the bot isn't just answering questions that students may ask. It actually proactively checks in with students almost on a periodic basis. It's a friend. It's a friend. So it will check up on you and ask you, you know, once a week or once every two weeks, how things are going. Are you scared of failing any midterms next week? If we think that maybe you may have some financial issues, we may ask you if you skipped a meal in the past week because you couldn't afford to pay for it. If you say yes, we'll connect you to the school's pantry or we'll let you know of a resource for, for that. Um, so it is pretty proactive and we weren't sure how students were going to respond to it. Um, but it's going really well. We talked to over 50,000 students, um, universities all over the country. Student engagement is super high. We have 96% opt-in um, and 91% of students love talking to the bot. Wow. Yeah. When you approached the colleges with this idea, mm -hmm. What was their initial reaction? I think a lot of institutions really like the concept, but it always it almost sounds too good to be true. Um, they're almost a little bit skeptical that students will want to talk to their university and to their mascot that often. They're scared of over-surveying students and over-texting them. And these are all fears that, quite frankly, we had too when we started off before we tested this out. Um, but now we actually have data that proves that that's not the case, that students... We ask students what they like the most about engaging with their bot, and it's um, not even getting the resources as much as I like that my university cares about my opinion. I like to voice my thoughts. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one because they're using and leveraging this technology to establish as crazy as I can't even believe I'm saying these words to establish some kind of emotional connection. Yeah. And I say that, Carolina, because what I find in, and I don't want to say it's just my students, I'm just saying what we see in society mm -hmm. is propensity toward social isolation in places yeah. you didn't think that would exist. And I've had some of my freshman students, in spite of the fact they've been surrounded by dozens of people, mm -hmm. many of them are feeling lonely. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's good they talk to a machine or not, but what I know is they need someone to help them mm -hmm. and sometimes they're afraid to reach out yeah. to, to, a, to a person. Yeah. Is that what you're getting to here? Yeah, it's interesting because students know that their university ultimately sees uh, their text messages. And we make this very clear when they opt into the program. So they're aware that real people are at the end of this, but they open up a lot more than we anticipated. And a big reason is they don't feel judged. They don't feel, they're not getting that immediate face or frown like what you're giving me now. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I can't believe <laughs> I'm not, hearing all of this. Yeah, they don't get any, you know, face or reaction. And so they feel like they can say whatever they want. Um, and then, of course, if it does get sensitive or if there is a need for a real person to step in, the bot will, you know, forward that message to the person and staff can always reach out and support that student in, in real person. Right. Um, so it's a blended effort between the bot and real people, but it helps real people understand which students to prioritize, which students may need more attention and why. And the bot is doing most of the groundwork. And you have someone, a venture capitalist or someone behind you? Yeah. So we have investors. Um, some are angels, some are VCs. Uh, and yeah, they funded our product and we're probably raising another round this year. Congrats. And yeah. you're building an organization. Yes. What is that like? Hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Explain. Just, just highlights. What, what, what have been the challenges? So to, to all the entrepreneurs out there that yeah. think, hey, Carolina, this is a cool message. Give me some advice because... Uh, it just, I think that's mm -hmm. the hardest part. I'm not saying the technology is easy, yeah. but I know the engineers that I teach at Columbia, they tell me all the time, engineering, it's easy. People, not yeah. easy. 
Um, I think it's the pressure. You're pressured on many different angles. So from your customers, you're pressured to deliver that product that you promised that they're going to have in the fall um, and building that and making it something that they love. You're pressured because you have employees. So if you can't raise that next round of capital, um, that's obviously like a tough position to be in. And it's a lot of pressure from your investors because your investors want to see you grow constantly um, and you want to make them happy and make sure that their investment was worthwhile. And so, and then it's a lot of pressure on yourself because unfortunately, and I'm learning to deal with this more, but unfortunately you tend to tie up a lot of your self-worth into your business and you really start seeing it as your life. Um, and it's hard to take that step back. It took me a while to really be able to distinguish the two, but it's hard to really understand, okay, this is not what's determining whether I'm a successful person or uh, this is my business. But the business maybe not doing so well at times doesn't mean that uh, that's a reflection of how I'm doing and what I'm worth. And so I think that's really the hardest thing for entrepreneurs is being able to separate those two things. Um, and it takes some time. I think it takes at least a year to fully be able to understand that because you're so invested in it right. in the moment um, that that's all you think about essentially. One of the things I find in many of the CEOs that I train, I, I often lead the professional development initiative with a picture of mind, body, and spirit. And then I stick somewhere in the proposal right in the middle, middle of it about having time for reflection. Yeah. And I say that because in your world, I suspect with your employees or your investors, we are operating at 100 miles an hour. And often, I think many of the people that I work with, I, I ask them to take the time, go to the gym, step yeah. away. No, I can't. The world can't get on without me. You, you are describing that? Mm -hmm. It's, I, I think for founders, it's really easy to burn out. Right. And that's the worst thing that you can do for your company and for your employees and for everyone. And I, I think my sister and I got pretty good at this over time, but it's still hard. For me, I'm a big runner. I like working out and I like going to the gym and running and I need to run at least three or four times a week to just get mental clarity. Um, Let, let's in the time that we have remaining, yeah. I'm loving this because there are some call to actions here. Mm -hmm. One of the themes on this show is answering the question. Yeah. When people are listening to you, what do we want our listeners to think? Yeah. What do we want them to feel? And what do we want them to do? And I'm asking this in the context of there are many 26, 27 year olds yeah. who would love to do what you did yeah. and recognize they may not have the cash, mm -hmm. so they don't do it. Mm -hmm. But you did. Mm -hmm. And I applaud you for that courage. And if you were giving advice to them, what mm -hmm. do you want the listeners who may be connecting to this story, mm -hmm. what do you want them to think about their possibilities? Yeah, well, I think for, especially for 20-something-year-olds, your 20s is supposed to be the time in which you experiment. Um, and then I heard this once from someone that oftentimes you're making all these mistakes in your 20s, and then by the time you figure it out, you're in your early 30s. And not for everyone, but unfortunately, that's sometimes the time to settle down and start thinking about a family or, um, you know, you don't get to mess around and experiment as much. And so you should almost have another decade between your 20s and your 30s in which you get to practice everything that you learn in your 20s, making all those mistakes. Cool. Let's get to the second part. And that's yeah. really the heart. What do you want them to feel about going through this journey every day? Uh, I think excitement. I think excitement and courage to let go of whatever you complain about that you don't like, but you're still doing three years in. Right. Um, and knowing that there's no such thing, in reality, there's no such thing as failing when it comes to being a founder and 
starting your own thing because you take so much away from every failure. Um, and it's a numbers game. The more times you fail, the more times you know, you're going to do well. And that means you're closer to succeeding. That's a common theme on a climb to the top. And then the call to action, because all of this is good. Yes. But you got to pull the trigger on something. Yes. What do you want them to do with this? Um, I, I think choice paralysis and overthinking are the biggest obstacle to anyone who's thinking of changing their lives. And, you know, sometimes stripping the weight away and not overthinking it and just giving it a shot. Um, making up really your mind to do it. Making up your, yeah, making up your mind and not overthinking it and just doing it. Um, and for me, that was quitting my job. But I think that's the biggest thing. Well, I'm going to end here with the quote of the late, great Winston Churchill, who said, success is not final. Okay. Failure is not fatal. Mm -hmm. It's the courage to continue that counts. Yes, I think that's a great quote. Would you agree with that? I would. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, Carolina, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming into the studios of Talk Radio 77 WABC. You have listened to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. Thank you for tuning in and good night. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.